Open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 7. You know, these last several months, we have been making our way through the Gospel of Matthew, and we've been particularly camped out in Matthew 5 through 7 in the Sermon on the Mount. The most uh, famous, powerful sermon in the history of sermonating preached by Jesus Christ himself 2,000 years ago, Matthew 5 through 7. That's where we have been camped out. And today, we get to the end of that sermon. And if you haven't been with us, uh, or maybe you've just been hopped, hopped in here and there, and, and you're not super familiar with the sermon, if I was going to try to boil the Sermon on the Mount down to two words, um, here is what they would be. And, the, and these two words might seem at first like they don't go together, like they're completely antithetical, but as we've seen, that's not the case. And these two words, of course, are happiness and righteousness. You see, happiness, we all get. We all want to be happy. It's every person in the history of planet Earth wants to be happy, wants to be fulfilled, wants to have their soul be at rest. But yet, as we've seen, never has happiness, it seems, been so elusive. In fact, study after study seems to show that the more we have, the more materialistic that we are, the less happy that we're going to be. But, you know, but, but, no, but no doubt, happiness is a universal desire. The issue is, where do we find it? And it's into that place that Jesus says, do you want to be happy? Do you want to flourish? Do you want to be blessed? Do you want it to be well with your soul? The path to happiness is righteousness. Now, this is not a righteousness that's a goody-two-shoes righteousness or a legalistic righteousness. This is not the kind of righteousness that, that we muster up on our own in order to get God to love us a little more or earn his grace. When Jesus uses the word righteousness, that's not what he means. What he means is wholeheartedness. This idea that there is a consistency in our souls, that, that who we are on the inside matches who we are on the outside. That, that righteousness is that place where we move away from hypocrisy to wholeness, that who we are on the outside matches the inside. And we may think at first that righteousness and happiness don't go together. In fact, we've been taught exactly the opposite, right? If you want to be happy, if you want to have joy, if you want to, if you want, I mean, live life to its fullest. Pursue your desires, whatever they happen to be. Don't hinge yourself to any tradition or religion or moral code or value. You are your ultimate authority. And, and this is what we've had drilled into our heads. But you know what? Deep down, we know it's not true. See, there is a kind of anxiety that we can experience that we would, might call a spiritual anxiety. And that's the anxiety that comes when we, above all else, know our true selves. We, we know regardless of what we say about ourselves or what we present to others, all of us are terrified of having the real self exposed, of, of being shown that we are a fraud, that, that someone might discover that we're not the same that there is an inconsistency and hypocrisy between what we say and what we do. And, and Jesus says, I, I know you live in that place. 
And so I invite you into my kingdom. I invite you into this place where you align your lives and your hearts with me and my values. That's what the Sermon on the Mount has been all about. And Jesus today comes to his, for lack of better terms, his closing argument. This is, this is, the, this is his last thing he's going to say. And it's sort of an apologetic and it's apologetic for why you and I should be listening to what he is saying. And it's meant to press us forward into a decision. Jesus wants to make it very clear there is no neutral in our spiritual walks. It's just like telling someone when someone asks you to do something and you say, I need to think about that. Or, or ask me later. Or I'll, 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 I need to kind of wait on making a decision. We all know what that really means, right? And it's a southern way of saying no. And, and a lot of times we do that spiritually. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. Coming to the end of this sermon calls for a decisive action. Who are you? And Jesus, to illustrate this point, pulls out one of the, the most well-known Bible passages, illustrations in all the Bible. Even if you have not been exposed to Christianity or not read the Bible much or been in Sunday school, you've probably heard some version of this passage and this message. Um, your kids have probably sung songs about it. I, I put it on the request list for, for, for Pastor Joe this morning, and he conveniently ignored it. I just want you to know. But you'll see as we get into it, of course, I'm talking about the two builders, the one who built on the rock and the one who built on the sand. And so we're going to be in Matthew 7 this morning. Uh, beginning in verse 24 to the end of the chapter. If you're able to, I'm going to ask you to stand as we read God's word together. Jesus is, of course, preaching. And he says, Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house. But it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. Let's pray. Lord, for a passage like this that many, maybe most of us, are super familiar with, we need fresh eyes and fresh ears. Lord, we pray that you would bring us to a point where we would be convinced beyond a shadow of a doubt that there is no other foundation in this life or the life to come except what is built upon you. So, so Jesus, penetrate our hearts this morning with this familiar passage, and we ask that you would bless us now. In your name we pray. Amen. You may take your seats. So in baseball, they, they call it the cleanup inner. Track and field, it's your anchor person, right? Well, in, in homiletics class, they teach you that the most important part of your sermon, so to speak, is your closing illustration, Right? That's the thing that's going to tie everything up. It's going to leave the impression. It's going to call for 
action. So in with your best story or illustration is, is what the preacher is taught. And interestingly, that's pretty much what Jesus does. This is a passage that, that is so clear, so simple, so familiar, it might be easy to brush past. They say, oh, I've, I've heard this before in The Rock and the foolish man built this house upon a rock. I was doing my hands like The Rock. You, know, like, you remember that? Okay. And, and, and that would be a mistake because what Jesus says here is of utmost critical spiritual priority for our lives. What are we going to do, not just with this sermon, but what are we going to do with Jesus? And as we're going to see, you cannot separate the two. All right, so here's, here's three points for us, and they kind of build off the, the basic metaphors of the passage. First, we're going to talk about storms. Second, we're going to discuss builders. And finally, we'll examine this issue of foundation. So storms, builders, and foundation. So let's, let's, let's dig in. Look at verses 25 and 27. Jesus references here something he calls rains, floods, and winds. And that's sort of a catch-all phrase for the many and varied assortment of natural disasters, natural elements that those in the ancient world, particularly in the Middle East, were subject to. And by the way, this is still oftentimes the case, but in that part of the world, there are torrential downpours. There are sand and dust storms. There are earthquakes. Those were treacherous days, and several factors made those elements, those weather elements, particularly dangerous. Okay, first of all, there's no weather forecast. There's no AccuWeather app. Here's a challenge for you. How many of you can get through this sermon without examining your weather app, okay, during the message? The older Susan and I get, the more we, the, the more we tend to be looking at the weather on our maps, typically on the quarter of an hour, right? And, but there was no weather forecast. There was no advanced preparation. Storms could appear and strike with a suddenness and a ferocity that could be absolutely devastating. And what made these storms particularly dangerous in this culture is that it was very dry, it was very arid, it was this Mediterranean context, which meant that the rain sometimes would come so fast that the ground didn't have time to absorb it. And it just took down everything in its past. Now, if you've been checking your AccuWeather app like Susan and I have this month, you know we've had an inordinate amount of rain this particular summer season, particularly in July. In fact, we heard yesterday there's some parts of Leon County that got three and a half inches of water or of rain just yesterday. And it reminds me back in 2001, I can't remember, we, Susan and I lived over here in the villages of Kalarm, which is right behind the church here. And some sort of tropical storm decided it was going to park itself immediately over our house. I mean, directly. And it proceeded to drop nine inches of water in three hours. And that water, not surprisingly, had nowhere to go. So it decided to camp out in our bedroom. It was really exciting, right? And it decided to stay for, for the next week or so. And that's what happens in life sometimes right? Your life can change in a phone call. Your life can change in a diagnosis. There can be a knock on your door at 3 a.m. in the morning 
from a state trooper and you know that can't be good. This life, Jesus says, and this is very clear from the message, the passage here, is full of storms. In fact, you could, I would venture to say, life is one gigantic storm, right? Because of our sin, because of our fallenness, Paul says the earth is groaning under the curse of sin and death. And our life is full of these sorts of disturbances. And we have other words for them. Sometimes we call them terminal illnesses. Sometimes there are natural disasters. There are car wrecks. There's loss of job, loss of finances. There's kids breaking their hearts. There's disappointments in your marriage. There's grief, bereavement. Not to mention just the very unnatural aspect of aging, right? Where, where, where there's this giant storm of death that faces all of us somewhere on the horizon. And here's the deal. Maybe this is your first Sunday you've ever had in church. You don't have to believe what I'm saying theologically, although theologically it's true. You know it by experience. Some of you, in fact, are right in the middle of some very severe storm this morning. And we all know it no matter how much we want to try to insulate ourselves, no matter how much we want to provide security, we want to, put, we want to have our insurance policies literally and figuratively, we want to, want to construct our life in a way that will insulate us from danger, we all know in a matter of seconds it can all change just like that and it's not in our control. Now I want to point out something about this illustration or this idea of storms that I think is very obvious but we have to repeat it just to make sure we're on the same page. These two houses, I think, Jesus is holding up for us are, are meant to be conveyed that these are two houses sitting side by side. These are two houses built in the same location. They're in the same proximity. They're on the same cul-de-sac. But both are impacted by the storms. Meaning, storms are ubiquitous. And there's, there's, it's, it's not like when there's a natural disaster. The natural disaster only impacts those who aren't Christians. You see, just as the rain falls on the just and the unjust, Jesus says, both Christians and non-Christians experience trials in this life. Now, God has a specific purpose and a design for them in the life of the Christian, but that's not the point of this sermon. The point of this sermon is that being faithful, being a believer, doesn't insulate you from suffering. That, that is a false heresy. It's a false teaching. Storms are coming for all of us because all of us live in a fallen world. Not to belabor the point, but there's not a specific kind of cancer for Christians and a specific kind of cancer for non-Christians. You know, you know what I'm saying is true. REM, the way they sang it 20 years ago was to say, everybody hurts. And we know that, don't we? Now, let me just say, just as a point of qualification, there are certain kinds of storms, certain kind of hardships that are brought on specifically by our disobedience and sin. But that's not the point of this passage, okay? The point of this passage is that everyone is impacted by the fallenness of this 
life. So, so two questions, two questions. They're the ones you know I have to ask. It's not what storm, or, or it's not if you're experiencing a storm this season, it's, it's what storm, right? So number one, what storm have you walked into here right now with? Maybe it's personal, marital, relational, familial, financial, vocational, medical, relational. Did I get all the ols? Hey, there, there we are. What, what, what storm have you walked into this room with this morning? In a church this size, we know there's lots of storms. But here's just as an important question. And in fact, Jesus said this is actually a more important question than what storm are you experiencing? It's this question, how are you experiencing these storms? Do you find yourself, quite honestly, at a place of real brokenness, despair, hopelessness? Or are we like Paul who says, although we're sorrowful, we're not Paulianish, we're always rejoicing. Outwardly, we're wasting away. But I know, Pastor Paul, inwardly, I'm being renewed day by day. And what Jesus is most interested in here, in this passage, in this closing illustrations, is how do you and I navigate the storms? And as we're going to see in the second point, how we navigate the storms is a product, a function of the quality of our spiritual houses. So let's look back at the text. Jesus says there are two men, it's ubiquitous for men and women, it's just a generic term, two men who build two houses undergoing the same storm, okay? And obviously, these houses represent two lives. Now, when we talk about lives, we don't just mean physical lives or where you live geographically, but really, this represents two outlooks, two worldviews, two value systems, and we understand what Jesus is wanting us to realize is that each of us, whether we are cognizant of it or not, have a spiritual house. The question is, what kind of house is it? The second thing he wants us to realize is that all of us are building our spiritual house. Even when we think we're not building, you know, Pastor Paul, I'm just going to kind of take a break from religion this time in my life. I'm going to take a break from church and this Christian thing. Do you realize even at that decision point, you are building? You are constructing something. You are, you are incorporating certain kinds of spiritual building materials or lack thereof into your life. Our house, for lack of better terms, is who we are. It's what we're trusting in, what we value, what we prioritize, what we're leaning on. What is the thing or two or three in your life you would say, you know, Pastor Paul, I know I can't count on this or this or this, but here's what I can count on. I can count on this. When the chips are down, I've always been a healthy person. When, when, when the chips are down, I've always been able to work hard. When, when, when the chips are down, I, I know that I can just outwork everybody. Well, whatever that thing is of yours, that's part of your house, your makeup. This is what Jesus is talking about. And Jesus says, the storms are coming. How will your house do? Now, I was flipping around looking at 
old images, satellite images, for when Hurricane Michael came through here four or five years ago, however long ago it was. I know somebody here will email me and correct me, will tell me the exact date. But this is under the guise of sermon research. You, you put up two pictures, right? And I was looking specifically at Mexico Beach. And you know that Mexico Beach was absolutely devastated. And you could see the satellite picture before and the satellite picture after, right? Here are beautiful beaches and parks and homes. And then this next picture, they're all wiped away, except for one picture. And you may have read about this a few years ago when this happened. But they, but they, they scan, they pan the camera right across the, the coast. And all of these beautiful multi-million dollar homes are just absolutely destroyed, taken down to the nub, except one house. And it was just stately sitting out there. Like it was like, it looked like the White House, right? It was the beacon on the hill. And you're wondering, how did that house make it, but none of the others didn't? That's what I asked anyway. So I did a little research. First of all, you'll be happy to know that the owners of that beach house hail from the great state of Tennessee. That has threw that one in there for you for free. But when you, when you read about what happened, one, you realize they built this house differently. They spent 15 to 20% more than is required by the law or the, even the most stringent permitting requirements. The pilings or the foundations for this beach home went 40 feet into the ground. The walls of this house were one foot thick of solid concrete walls. And most of you wish your kids lived in rooms with those kind of walls. We get it, right? There were actually, when they built this, cables attached to the roof. And I don't mean like fishing line. I mean like cables. I don't know how all this works. But when the storm came, the storm hit everyone. But one house was still standing. Now, here's the question. Why didn't everyone build their house that way? And, and you and I immediately know the answers, right? Oh, Pastor Paul, that's too expensive. That's too hard. That's going to take longer. We want to be in there right here, right now for the summer season. And if we put all that work and effort to it, we might miss the season, right? It's just easier not to. It doesn't take as much blood and sweat and tears. I'm already paying out the nose for this house I'm not going to pay even more. I'm not going to wait even longer. And you can see the spiritual analogy, right? Jesus says we're all spiritual builders. You cannot not be a builder. The question is, what are you building with? And how are you building? Now, there could be a lot of reasons to build the way that we build. But here, here's Jesus's central proposition to us. What Jesus says is that the house that is built on the rock stands. The one that isn't, doesn't. And if you want to understand why some endure storms in this way and others endure storms this way, you have to look at the foundation. And what is the foundation? It would obviously be, cor be correct, and we sang about it this morning, to say, of course, Pastor Paul, we know Jesus is the rock. 
Jesus is the foundation. And of course, we know that is true. We hear those echoes all through the New Testament. So just a couple of examples. For no one can lay a foundation, Paul says, other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. There it is. Jesus is the foundation. We, um, we did one of these responsive readings from 1 Peter 2 this morning. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone or a foundation a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So obviously, Jesus is wanting to communicate, I am that rock. I am that foundation. Build upon me. But here's what we want to dig into in our remaining time this morning. How is Jesus the rock? And how do you and I know if we're building on him. You see, we're in a, in a, in a spiritual culture, Melu, where, where Jesus is just all right with most folks in some context, right? He's a good prophet. He has some good things to say. He's got some wisdom for life. He's got some nuggets that you can incorporate into your political worldview or your personal worldview. He's just all right with me. He, Jesus can fit somewhere into our cultural context. And so, so there are many, even people who may not consider themselves religious, they not be more spiritual, are glad on some level to align themselves, at least in name, to Jesus. The question is, are you and I building upon him? And thankfully, Jesus makes this really clear for us. Look at verse 24. Who is the one who is building upon Jesus? And here's Jesus' answer, verse 24. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them. That's the person who's building on Jesus. Conversely, look at verse 26. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them is not building upon me. These words of mine. What is Jesus referring to? On one hand, we could say, of course, Jesus is referring to all of his teaching that we see in the Gospels and the New Testaments and commented upon by the other apostles. Of course, that's true. We could also say, and this would be correct, Jesus is talking about his word, okay, the things that he teaches. But I think even more specifically in this context, remember, this is a sermon Jesus is preaching, He's getting to the end of it. It's the, I was going to say the coup d'etat, that's not right, the coup de gras, right? At the very end, he wants to bring it all, and he's telling them, if you want to build your life, if you want to be happy, if you want to flourish, if you want to be blessed, don't just listen to my teachings in this sermon, but actually obey them. Do them. That's how you know if you're building upon me. You see, this is, a, this, this is a particularly dangerous place for us, particularly those of us who, who claim to be Christians, because we traffic in the Word. Oh, yes, Pastor Paul, we, we, the Word. We, we might even know the Word, have memorized the Word. We can recite the Word. 
We can, we can give affirmation to it on a Sunday morning. We can sit just like this and listen to the word. But Jesus says, listening, hearing is not how you build. Or that's not all you have to do to build. The question is, will you obey? Will you entrust yourself to me? Will you have faith? Will you trust me enough to say that the things that I say to do, even though I might have a different idea, even though this might go contrary to how I was raised, or Pastor Paul, this was not what I was taught when I was growing up. Jesus says, are you building upon me? Do you hear my words? Do you obey them? And James says the same thing. I don't know what James says. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, listen, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be, interesting word, blessed, happy, flourishing in his doing. It's almost like Jesus was the, James was the brother of Jesus and was there for this sermon and wrote it down. I say that tongue in cheek, right? Of course. See, that word, blessed in his doing, it's the same word that we started off this whole sermon on the mount with, makarios, flourishing. See, Jesus says it's perfectly reasonable for us to say, if, if I'm not flourishing this season, if I'm not happy, and I mean, and I don't mean a superficial happiness, I don't mean the kind of frustrations or irritations when you run out of gas or your car breaks down or something like that happens. I'm talking about a, a, a rock-solid assurance that it is well with my soul, that I am content in the Lord, that I know that, as we sang this morning, wholeheartedly, Jesus is better. If that's not where we are this morning, instead of looking to and fro, Jesus has a much more basic category and question for us. Are you a doer of the word? Are you just being obedient to the basics of the Christian faith? Are, are you pursuing a wholeheartedness? Even when you realize you're not pursuing a wholeheartedness, that you're a spiritual schizophrenic, as we all are at different points in time, you're not okay with it. That you want to change, you want to turn, that you want to repent. A lot of us are looking to and fro for whatever it is. And Jesus says, I've got a foundational place for you to look. Are you building upon me? Listen to what Martin Lloyd-Jones says about the man who builds upon the rock. He is a man who desires and prays for holiness and who strives after it. He does his utmost to be holy because his supreme desire is to know Christ. Not only to be forgiven, not only to go to heaven, but to know Christ now, to have Christ as his brother, to have Christ as his companion, to be walking with Christ in the light now, to enjoy a foretaste of heaven here in this world of time. That 
is the man who builds upon the rock. Because why don't we build upon the rock? Well, go back to the illustration, the metaphor for just a second. It's just so much easier to build on the sand, isn't it? We, we, we get in a hurry, we're impulsive, we're in the moment. We're, we're letting our feelings dictate what is true. The person who builds on the sand, it's just easier. It just it takes obedience, Pastor Paul, it takes too much time. It's too, too, too much work. I don't, or, or it might be self-sufficiency. I don't need other people to tell me what to do. I don't need direction. I don't need the manual. I don't need the instruction book. I know what's best. Because we're building on the sand when we put self at the center. When everything is gauged by how this impacts me, how does this impact my comfort, my affluence, my station in life, the person who builds on the sand might look at the Sermon on the Mount and say, I, I love it when Jesus talks about loving your neighbor. I'm all about that as long as my neighbor doesn't actually live next door, right? But this stuff about justice and holiness and righteousness, don't, I don't like that as much. Jesus says, if you want me, you have to have all of me. So before we leave this point, one more time, what are you building with spiritually in this season? See, this, I think, brings us all the way back to the Beatitudes, doesn't it? So the world says, build your house on pride. Build your house on self-sufficiency. Build your house on winning. Look out for yourself. The last person standing wins. And what does Jesus say? Blessed are the what? Poor in spirit. Blessed are not those who win, but blessed are the meek. Not blessed are those who destroy everyone in their path with their intellect and arguments. What does Jesus say? Blessed are the peacemakers. And this is where the point of faith comes in. We have to say, but Pastor Paul, that seems so backwards. And Jesus says, trust me. This brings us to our last point, foundations. We could end this here. Jesus could have ended his sermon there. Matthew could have ended it there, but he doesn't. Listen to this, these two little, it's almost like an epilogue. You know, what's an epilogue? It's that, it's that one-minute little clip at the end of your, um, your favorite TV show where it sort of wraps everything up, right? Puts, puts, a, puts, a, puts an exclamation point on it. I think I've told you this before, but when Susan and I first married 30 years ago, we used to record every Andy Griffith episode we could on VHS, Okay. But, here, but there's like this little snooty cohort within the Andy Griffith fan club. There is many of those fan clubs, by the way. And here's the deal. Unless you recorded the epilogue, it doesn't count. And there's a whole cottage industry of epilogues and what does this one say and that one say. And it's true, right? The epilogue always had something very important to say. And here is Matthew's epilogue. And so let's read it together. Look at verse 28. 
And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. Now, why does Jesus talk about the scribes? Remember, he's, these, these are the Pharisees, the Sadducees. Remember from the very beginning of the sermon and all throughout, Jesus is preaching in opposition to the Pharisees. Remember, it was the scribes who looked good on the outside, but inwardly they were corrupt. They, said, they not only said one thing and did another, but even the things they did, they did for the wrong reasons. Which meant when it came time for the scribes to teach, it was just crickets. There was no power. There was no authority. There, 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 there was no Holy Spirit unction. There, there, God wasn't speaking through them. Jesus, this is why when we get to Matthew 23, Jesus pronounces all these woes upon him. They didn't teach with authority. They just made up man-made rules and tagged them onto the end of God's laws and made them burdens for people, and the people were not flourishing, but not Jesus. It tells us here that he spoke with power, with authority, and that the people were astonished. The, 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 the literal word in the Greek is they were amazed. They were dumbfounded. They were shocked. As John MacArthur says, they were struck out of their senses. To use a contemporary term, right? Their minds were blown. Who is this man? Where did he come from? He speaks with power and authority, and they were astonished. They were amazed. But the question that's left unanswered, and this is left unanswered intentionally, is did it penetrate their hearts? Were they hearers of the word only, or would they entrust themselves to these teachings? And by the way, that's what the rest of the Gospel of Matthew is all about. It's really an answer to that question. And as we're going to see, some followed Jesus, some entrusted themselves to him, but many, many fell away. Many, many turned their back. Many, many said, this is too hard, takes too much time, takes too much attention, requires too much obedience. But here's the point, they were all amazed. See, it's very possible to be amazed, for lack of a better church, or astounded by great teaching. Or your favorite podcast pastor, or a particular person, or maybe even a very well-known book. But 350 years ago, back during the Great Awakening, there was one of the most famous preachers in all of church history named George Whitfield. He was from England. He was at a Methodist. He was part of the Wesleyan movement. And people, um, he was the first to do outdoor preaching after the Reformation, and thousands came to hear him. And one, and one of his favorite, and even that, at that time, there were fanboys, right? There were groupies. One of his favorite fanboys was a man named Benjamin Franklin. And he, along with thousands of others, would come to hear George Whitfield. He was so compelling. He was clear. He was articulate. 
They were amazed at his teaching. But from everything we know, those teachings never penetrated Ben Franklin's heart. And this is the point that this illustration is meant to bring us to. What are you going to do, not just with the teachings of Jesus, but what are you going to do with him? See, you can't have one without the other. Jesus makes that very clear. I am the rock, Jesus says, and you are building upon me when you are obeying and doing the things that I have taught. See, we would love to put Jesus on our spiritual smorgasbord and say, I like when Jesus says this. I like it when he says that. I don't like it when he talks about hell. I don't like it when he talks about money. I do like it when he talks about the poor. And Jesus says, you don't get to make that choice. See, the Sermon on the Mount is far and above just a rule of ethics or norms or moral codes to incorporate in your life as you see fit. And it is a statement about the kingship of Christ. I want you just to consider for a second, we're going to end with this, everything that Jesus said about himself in this sermon. Jesus says, I haven't come to abolish the law. I've come to fulfill it. Jesus says, you've heard these guys say this, but I tell you, do this. Jesus refers to himself as Lord. He says, there are going to be many on that day clamoring and saying they knew me, but I'm going to tell them what? Depart from me. I never knew you. You see, you can't separate Jesus from his word. You can't separate Jesus from his teachings. You can't separate Jesus from obedience. And there is a, there's a word of warning, right, in this last little parable. Look back at verse 27. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house. And listen, and it fell and great was the fall of it. That is the destiny of any and all who hear Jesus, are enamored by his words, but don't entrust themselves to him. Jesus is a great prophet. He is a sage. He is a philosopher. He is a wise man. But fundamentally, who does Matthew present Jesus as being in this gospel? You know the answer. He is king. And as we, as those who call him Lord, come to see ourselves in this sermon and see Pastor Paul, I, I know I'm a spiritual schizophrenic. I, I know I have failed in doing many of these things. Where do I turn? What do I do? Listen to what Psalm 2 says. It's a messianic psalm. Kiss the son, lest he be angry. And you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. But listen, blessed or happy are all those who take refuge in him. You see, Jesus didn't just fulfill the law by obeying the law. Oh, he did that. But Jesus fulfilled the law by dying for people like you and me who couldn't obey, who refused to obey. And he says, come to me. Entrust yourself to me. Build your life upon me. 
have faith in me and I will give you rest in whatever storm confronts you this day. I ask you to bow your heads for a moment. As our elders come forward to prepare to serve the Lord's Supper, I want to pray for us and just have you meditate on this word, on this teaching, on this passage, as we come to the King's table.